Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Hey, Liana. Hi, Dom. So last episode, we talked about some kind of practical tips for people on actions they can do with people who are high in passive styles. So I thought it'd be cool today to talk about the equivalent, but for some of the aggressive defensive styles instead. Mm-hmm. And so I think we, we preferenced last episode at the start saying these are really thought starters. So there's no sort of absolute, you know, if someone's high on competitive, they should do ABC. It's really situation dependent. So you need to talk to the person. But what we wanted to do, because we get this question a lot, right, around actions. And so it's really just to put out there some thought starters for people that they can maybe build off. Mm work with their clients. So with that said, if we jump into it, at a cluster level, what's going on for that aggressive defensive space? What should we be keeping in mind as a practitioner? Well, a lot of critical sits in the red space. So you can be hypercritical of yourself. As a sort of, you used to like to front load that because aggressive defensive styles as they receive, people can demonize them a little bit. Uh, but what sits uh-huh. beneath it is you know, quite a, often quite a harsh self-critic. But what you will probably notice with people high on aggressive defensive styles is they're preoccupied with results, task, proving themselves, getting things done. There's probably a bit of speed and pace behind mm. which they operate. And, you know, in a debrief, you might find it hard to get a word in. And so you might recognize it sort of playing out. But that pace that they keep often comes at a bit of a cost with making sure people are able to come along with them. So there's clear direction. They can see the results. They can see the the outcomes, but what it means is that they they may forget to communicate or stop, pause, listen, understand, and pivot. You know because the direction is so set and clear. So that's some of the the challenges. And I guess if you're reading between the lines, you can see that the challenge of high task is often the burn on the people side of the circumplex. Right, and so we talk about the payoff and trade off of stars, and so mm. there is a payoff to aggressive you stars, and you can get stuff done. Especially as an individual, and you can you can win the day, but the the trade off is often in those relationships with other people and in building competency with other people. So I, I often talk about you can win today, you can win the match today, but are you building towards the championship? Because yeah. you can only do that with your team, or even more, are you building towards the championships plural? Yeah, right over many seasons. Because if you keep trying to win every game on your own, you're going to burn out. So how are we bringing the team with us? And so it's kind of about, does today matter more than the, does this game matter more than the championship? Yeah. You ask yourself that. And interestingly, if you ask people who are high on, on these styles, one of the, the things that they will share with you is, you know, the what keeps them up at night or the things that frustrate them the most is that the level of competency of those around them mm. or their ability to keep up with them or bring ideas to them. So they often know the things that aren't working with their team, but sometimes they struggle to connect the dots between what they're doing and how that might be influencing others. I think that's it. Like It's a bit of a chicken and the egg situation as far as two... So aggressive defensive styles are often high trust in self, but low in and others, others yes. right, if, if we can say that. And so to trust other people, you got to you have to believe that they're competent yeah. at doing what they do, right? And... And I think that's not an unreasonable thing to to expect because I'm not 
I know someone's completely incompetent of doing something, I'm not going to trust them to do it, you know. But the question you've got to ask is, what are you doing to build their competency? Yes. Right. So, so you can then release things. Yeah. What's the path for them to get to that point? Yeah. And yeah. are the standards you're setting reasonable? Um, exactly. For those individuals to meet. I have this conversation repetitively with my partner. Oh, I'm <laughs> throwing him under the bus here. <laughs> and so, you know, the, you're so right that the belief has to be there at some point because what I find with, with his challenge is the pace. So you need to be able to slow yourself down a little bit as well to acknowledge where someone else is at because often what happens is they forget they forget what it's like, let's say, to be a new person in a role mm. and all the things that they don't, you don't know at that point that you, you only build over time. At that pace when you're operating, you, you just, I think there's a point at which you forget. And so you need to kind of hit the pause button, I suppose. Yes. Which is very uncomfortable with high task oriented people. It is. And I think, especially for leaders and managers, you've got to realize that your role is actually to develop this person, right? Yeah. To, to deliver it. and. Yep. It's hard because people feel like they've got to take a short-term hit. And, and maybe you do, right, because you've got to slow down. And it's this whole, you know, with something like delegation, often it does slow you down initially because I'm going to have to go through, explain with this yeah. person and help them and guide them. But eventually it's going to speed you up because you're not going to have to get involved in every situation of this type in the future, right? Yeah. Because now they're away and doing it. It's so true. There is like a, teaching there is someone to drive or something. Yeah. Like, oh, pull your hair out trying to teach someone to drive, but it means you don't have to taxi them everywhere in the future. Yeah. 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 It's um if we bring it back then, if we go into the actual style, so what are the things that practitioners should be thinking about as far as actions and the different styles? And if we maybe if we go through Yeah. Well, one of the things I've noticed, we can go through some of the the styles and and the techniques that I've used in the past. One of the things that I've noticed about high task oriented individuals in debriefs is that they want to move to action quite quickly. Um, Mm. And so... Playing out their nature. Yeah, playing out their nature. And referencing that awareness acceptance action model, you know, I, what I've learned to do is hold them in a space a little bit longer because I talk about the pace thing. Hold them in that space of awareness and understanding for a little bit longer because what Again, what you want them to do is to to be able to replicate in that in real life too. So being able to pause before you take action and take stock of, okay, what are the implications? What might others think? And so that's something I'm very mindful of, that their propensity for action is high, but that then also means that for their level of comfort and buy-in, you probably also want to have some structured things for them to do at the Mm. end of each debrief that at least can give them some comfort that they're making progress because tasks are important to them. Mm. And so I think actually for this style, it's very important to to be prepared for giving some form of action at the end of every debrief. It may not be a momentous change in behavior, but it could be, you know, you're going to speak to one person and share, you know, what you've learned about yourself. Could it even be, so if we're working through the awareness acceptance action model with them, so at the end of awareness, it could be go away and read the self-development guide pages yeah. 42 to whatever it is. But it's something. It's, they feel like they're then moving forward and doing something. Yeah. that is. It's really important that they have something to do because what I've noticed is if you can't capture them to capture them to do something and see the worth in it, it will end up in the top drawer because of that propensity for action and speed. Mm. So, do you want to look at some of the styles? Yeah, let's go through. So, maybe if we start at, at the bottom, so we kind of went around the circumplex and the passive styles. So, if we pick up from oppositional. Yeah. So, 
What's going on in the oppositional space and what are some things people could look at? So oppositional, characterised by you know scrutinising, being a bit critical, it can be a point in time that someone's frustrated. So sometimes you can find passive defensive styles turning into, you know, you get passive defensive cluster and then you get this spike in oppositional, which kind of comes from a sense of helplessness becoming frustrated, you know, mm, frustrated lashing out, yeah. lashing out. And so that can be a moment in time. Oppositional is also quite self-critical as well. And so there's a propensity to identify things that aren't right with yourself, things that are wrong first constantly. Mm. I know the style very well. And so there's different things you can do from a behavioral and a thinking point of view, and they're both really important, particularly if they, uh, well, if they are in someone's LSI 1 and 2 profile, because sometimes it can be in the behavior, but not in the thinking. And so let's, if we look right. at just some of the behaviors, for example, what you find with oppositional from a behavioral lens is that they might be quick to jump in with the things that are wrong or flawed or, or put too much attention onto them. And so from a behavioral point of view, it's about creating the pause and giving yourself some space before you launch into catching yourself before you want to go in with a directive question and then coaching those individuals to start to reframe questions. So often it can just be about curiosity or mm. wanting to understand things, but to reframe questions. And you might ask yourself a question like, how might I build on this idea? Mm. So a great example of oppositional is in businesses where someone's been there for a long time and they tend to pipe up with, you know what, we've tried this before, it doesn't work, shut yep. it down. Classic. And it's really um, frustrating for people on the receiving end. It's also frustrating for them because they're thinking, what on earth are you putting this idea in front of me again for? I always like to say, but we haven't tried it this way. <laughs> you yeah, know, like, yeah. we so, haven't tried it now. So one of the things I, I've been coaching an individual lately on is, so isn't that great that you have all this wealth of experience? So how might you grow the idea? Mm. How might you support this in, individual in, in growing versus shutting it down? So you ask open-ended questions like, what do you hope to achieve? Or what needs to be true in order for this to be successful? Uh. So open up. You want to open up the dialogue versus shut it down by asking open-ended questions. Yeah, absolutely. And that's moving into that humanistic encouraging yeah. space. So it's about exploring the ideas. And I think with the oppositional style and people experiencing that in your behavior, it's often jumping, jumping to the solution. So jumping to the judgment of the solution, at least. Yeah. So going straight to, that's a great idea or that's a terrible idea. Before you've actually taken time to maybe understand it or explore it with them. And there could be, even if it is a non-optimal idea, there could be elements of it that we can take something out of. So it's exploring that with people. So hitting the pause button on saying yes or no, great idea, poor idea. And instead taking a little bit of time to explore it. Yeah. And and the thing about else. Just to pick up on the point you made there as well, also one oppositional, there is often a black and white thinking in there. So that's where uh, judgment can come in. It's a black, white, right, wrong. Yes. Good, bad. And so being mindful of that and creating a bit of gray for yourself. You know, what don't I know about this situation? What's interesting for me as well is I think in New Zealand and Australia, particularly in our, a lot of our idea, if we ask, you know, what does the ideal leader look like? There will often be a little extension in, in oppositional. Mm. Not as high as the constructives, but it'll be like a little bit of a flavor there. And I think there's something about that that's a part of our culture, right? That we think playing the devil's advocate a bit and, and testing ideas is worthwhile. And I don't actually disagree with that. Mm. There's nothing wrong with, you know, we don't just say things are cool when they're not. You know, if there's a problem with something, we need to talk about that. But it's how you do it and in balance with other styles. So yeah. 
So when we play devil's advocate, is it because we're kind of being blocking and so on, or is it that we're actually trying to help someone yeah. get a better idea and a better outcome? And it may be in your heart that that is what you're trying to do, but it's not coming across that way. Mm, definitely. And that's where that difference between thinking and behavior and that it might show up in one and not the other yeah. is a important red flag to note for yourself. Yes. And so access of motivation. So what's motivating the question that you're asking? So mm. you can ask yourself, what do I want to, something that I did in my early days, I had oppositional in my LSI one. What am I trying to achieve by asking this question? That's a mm. thinking, you know, because when you put your pause, that's you getting closer to the outcome, you know, you mm. want to achieve. Is, am I asking the question out of pure selfish need? I just want to know the answer. Or um, is the outcome I'm looking for to help this individual think through different perspectives? So you will phrase a question very differently if you think about what is the outcome you're looking for. So could it be as well as an action for someone who is oppositional? Is they, they might be a technical expert and they might know a whole lot about this. And so the action could be, can you teach someone else to know what you know? Mm. Right? And the only way to do that with adults is to get them to explore and to understand it for themselves. So what are the questions you can ask without telling them yeah. as to why an idea will or won't work, right? Yeah. So what are what can you ask, you know, have you considered what about this, what about that? And see, you know, if you can actually coach them mm. to a kind of understanding for themselves rather than just telling them. And you're actually touching on sometimes the relationship between power and oppositional where leaders, managers people responsible for people or projects feel that it is their responsibility to tell them what's wrong and what they need to do differently and can feel like that's that's part of their role. Mm. And so that's power and oppositional playing out. There's an opportunity to, instead of telling, ask questions to get, which is what you're talking about, shifted up to humanistic encouraging. Uh-huh. And so often the intent isn't always, you know, it's not a bad intent. It's I, I feel responsible to course correct this decision making and Sometimes people are holding a great deal of responsibility under a lot of pressure with a lot of deadlines. It's a lot faster just to tell. And so it's very appealing to do that under pressure. And sometimes you'll need to. Like to pick up, but to pick up your point earlier, the long-term consequence of that is dependence on you for decision-making. And so you've got to take a bit of a cost, a bit of a burn on your time and energy in the early days to shift out of that. That's right. Yeah. So it can be short-term effective, long-term ineffective. Yeah. So you've got to keep that in mind. One other thing I just want to touch on oppositional before we move move off it is LSI 1, there's a bit of frustration there. So trying to figure out what's frustrating you at mm. the moment is really mm. it's something I've worked through with clients. I, an individual that I was working with had a lot of green and a bit of red in both, in both profiles. And, and what it ended up being for him is that he felt he was actually operating in a role that wasn't playing to his strengths. And so he was just becoming frustrating with working on administrative tasks and he'd prefer to be doing a role that you know, required more creative thought. Mm. So it, getting to the heart of the frustration sometimes means you can remove, figure out what's in the your environment. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and what is it in your environment that might need to change in order to shift that level of frustration and put it back into, you know, achievement for yourself. Yeah, fantastic. So if we move on to power then. Yeah. So what's power about? Power is about control. Mm-hmm. Control has a, uh, sometimes people attach negative connotation to it, but being able to take control is also really important. We tend to kind of gravitate sometimes towards the charismatic ability of individuals to take control. But when it's really high, individuals feel uncomfortable when they don't have control, mm. which can then come at a cost. So it means that individuals high in control might feel the need to be, to be checked in with frequently to make decisions, to feel comfortable. 
So they, the message they're sending people is, I don't trust you to make decisions, therefore I need to be across all the ones that you make. Often it can also come with a need for status or a desire for status. Uh-huh. Communication can be a bit tricky for people high on power. Sometimes they sort of go, 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 and they forget to include all the information and communication. And when I talk about communication, I'm actually talking about the two-way kind, so not just the telling, but the testing for whether it's landed with someone, uh-huh. whether understanding has occurred. And so that's so characterized some of the attributes of people that are high on power. I think the interesting thing with power, so you know, you talked about driving that dependence in other people. Mm-hmm. So in our impact diagnostics, we look at what's the behavior you're driving in those around you. And that's a big one, right? So if you're using power styles all the time, then guess what? People are going to be dependent on you, which you might which you both might like, but also be incredibly frustrated by, because it's like, why, why, won't, why won't they just make decisions? Yeah. Like, well, because you don't want them to, yeah. right? Or the message you're sending them is that they shouldn't. So that can be incredibly frustrating. Same in teams, mm. right? If, you got, if you're in a team, a group decision-making, you might be able to kind of bulldoze our opinion through, right? So we're going to go left instead of right, because, you know, I think so. But if you haven't taken the time to work it through with people, then they won't actually be have bought in to. Mm. So even though you think everyone you've made the decision, people might not actually go away and do anything about it because they're like, "Wow, that's what Dominic yeah. thinks." It's a perception of control. Yeah, so I've made the decision, but no one's actually going to follow through on yeah. the action. So what good is what good is it? And so at yeah, at a macro level, power is the opportunity sits in the quality of the relationships. You flick over to the other side, opposite power is affiliative that's right and so you can kind of pull rank or use you know some kind of official power to make people do things but if you can't actually bring them along with you then it's the wheels are going to come off yeah right because people aren't really committed to doing it and so if you're in this power space then what what are the things that people could look at as far as actions Mm -hmm. if they're coaching someone who's down there so there's a lot in this kind of bucket if you like and sort of Delegation often comes up with people high on power, but it's kind of a big leap. And the message people are getting is, you don't trust us. And so one of the small techniques, if effective delegation is more of a long-term goal, which you can work towards, one of the more short-term goals would be to, let's use your team example, instead of making decisions unilaterally and coming to meetings, having already made or being final on a decision, You might go to a meeting and say, this is what I'm thinking, and then say, what are your views? Or if we make this decision, if it's a change, what are the implications for your part of the business? What will work? What won't work? So encouraging some involvement and discussion in decision-making is one technique that can help power-oriented leaders. It's not always comfortable for them to do that, but that's one technique that has, has worked. The other side of it, as I said earlier, it's macro level, is around taking the time to build relationships. And so that is relationship for relationship's sake, which sometimes unpalatable for people high on power. Mm. Yeah. I think one for power as well is it can be with a lot of experts, right? So they know, they often know a lot of stuff about yeah. something. But the question is, are you teaching someone else, mm. right? Who, what's your legacy? Is someone taking over after you? Are you creating more use? And often... They're not, right? And so that can be a way to get through to them. So how are you teaching people what you know? Yeah. Right? How are you getting that across to people? Yeah. I remember in a company I, I worked for, there's this particular problem, there's kind of option A or B. 
and and my friend worked for a particularly high power manager. And A and B, they were both kind of equally good options. To be honest, it was kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other. He went along and he said, Paul, I think we should do option A. Paul said, no, you idiot. Of course it should be option B. Uh, You know, okay, all right. So he goes away, does option B. A week or two later, almost an identical situation, just mildly different, comes up, option A and B. He's like, we'll do B, which is what they had said last time. And no, you idiot, do A. And so it was this kind of feeling of, well, no matter what you say, it's going to be the other one. And it was it was really a, a kind of power play because mm. then you're dependent on him because you don't know what's going to happen. Mm. You know, you don't know which option to go for because whatever one you choose, it's it's the wrong one. Yeah. And then actually at the heart of this, I mean, really with power-oriented styles, the individual, like with any style, has to really buy in to the reason why for change. Mm. You know, there has to be a real understanding of either the cost or the benefit around, main, you know, maintaining or shifting the style in order for the person to be authentically doing it because they could do face value very easily. Mm. But what's my reason why, to your point around, you know, legacy? The other spot is looking at the outcome items in the back of the size around family and relationships. Yeah, good point. Because there's often, the price is often paid at home. What is the relationship with your family, with your kids? Yeah. Because if you're using a power style with your teenage kids, then, you know, they're probably not in the house very often. So this is so true. And so talk about styles playing together. And I'll give another example of a recent debrief I did where the individual really didn't have an appetite or a desire to shift behaviors at work. Uh, There was nothing in it for him. Uh. And he was pretty resolute about that. So we figured out what it was that was important to him after having a, a recent relationship breakdown. It was to form a new relationship with someone uh-huh. and I asked him because he talks a lot about he loves problem solving loves taking control uh-huh. and, and that, that's sort of what feeds you know him feeling good I asked him what his listening skills were like and he said oh they're terrible and she's pulled his new girlfriend pulled me up on it frequently and I said okay so this is this is the action for you because I said is it important to you that this relationship works he said yes and uh-huh. um, I said do you think that your new girlfriend wants to feel heard and listened to? Do you think that's a priority for her? And he said, yes, it is. So he finally kind of realized at that point, actually, if I'm going to keep this relationship working, I need to work on my listening skills. And so in that moment, you know, that and that is point with the lifestyles inventory. The, it's the lifestyles inventory, yeah. not the leadership styles inventory or something. And so exploring that, the people's motivation for change is different. And I would suggest that change at that end, so with your partner, will actually shift you end up having an influence at work anyway. Yes. And in that instance, the work with him was to monitor how much time he spoke and listened. So have a, do a temperature check with yourself. So give some metrics at 80-20. Are you talking 80% of the time? And also to, to notice how many times he launches into problem solve. And so his task, if you like, was to go away and track that and monitor it and try to shift the balance between dialogue and listening. Yeah, fantastic. And that's interesting. You got to tap into what motivates someone to yeah. actually make a change. Because people change is tough and people won't just do it because a report tells them to do it. They need to they need to believe that there's something in it for them and that it's important to them. So especially with the high aggressive styles, the price is often in people's personal life. You know, we'll get to perfectionistic in a minute, but that's often, you know, they're working long hours and burning out and not seeing their family and whatnot. So, you know, not always, but that is often it's personal life where, where the is. cost is paid. Yeah. What about competitive? So... 
we move into the competitive space, what's going on there for people? What what are some things they can look at doing differently? So competitive can be preoccupied with you know looking for external validation of success. So we compare ourselves frequently to others, which means the goalposts can move all the time. But there's a sense of self-worth that comes from being on top of or better than others. And so that can be quite challenging for an individual because there's an unlimited amount of opportunity to compare yourself, particularly if hmm. you work in a you know high pressured or high performance business, competitive is probably rewarded frequently as well. So not oh. only you know if you might have it in your dialogue, then you're actually being encouraged further through being better than your peers and uh-huh. you know, performing better than them, getting paid for it. So characterized by wanting to be better at a high end, individuals you know may do things that end up costing the organization but making them look better. So that might be hiding mistakes or throwing your colleague under the bus, you know, as a you know, well, it's about a job. So it's about beating your teammate. Yeah. You know, and so we often talk about competitive is not a bad thing if we're competing with the right people. So it's about competing with the other businesses. Yeah. The other organizations, not about competing with the person in the cubicle next to you. Yeah. Because ultimately for the organization that gets a suboptimal result, right? So it's optimizing for yourself, but actually at the cost of the team and the organization. Yeah. And that's kind of the the trade-off of that. And you know what? It burns relationships out too. Yeah, it does. Um, it's hard. It can be difficult to trust if, you know, you're exhibiting behaviors high on competitive. People might feel they might withdraw from you or not share their true situation at a risk that they might kind of scoop it up and take it for themselves, you know. So uh, it can create diversions and silos in teams. So not sharing information. So I know this yeah. is going to happen in the market or something, yeah. but I'm not going to tell you because I'm going to take advantage of it. Yeah. Because it's not, so it's not actually about actual performance, it's about relative performance. So even if we're all going down on the Titanic, at least I'm in the best deck chair or something <laughs> compared to you. Right, so the organization suffers, but I am the best oh, of a okay. bad. I'm the best of a bad bunch. It's so it's such an interesting style to me. Like, because when you ask an individual if they constantly compare themselves to others, what's the belief that underpins that thinking? They will always say, "I'm not good enough. I'm not enough." Mm. And so when you uncover the belief that's attached to that thinking, I mean, it's quite profound, really. I feel it's quite like a sad thought that you, you know, that's how you think about yourself. But what happens is all the bravado that often comes with high perfectionistic is such a, a mask, you know, for what's going on underneath. Yeah. A feeling of inadequacy sometimes. Mm. But it ends up pushing people away, unfortunately. Mm. And so that's often a question I will ask in a debrief. What's the belief that underpins um, the need to, to compete with others? And shall I just launch into some of the things? That yeah, go. What, what would the actions be? Articulating... What is unique and valuable to them? So moving to self-actualizing, I find that competitive people, people high and competitive will be, as I said earlier, comparing themselves to lots of different people. And in essence, that pulls them further away from what's unique and valuable about them. So getting them clear on what's their value proposition, if you like. Mm. What do I bring to the table that you know isn't about others? That's one thing as an activity I would start getting individuals to do. Mm. What else do I do with competitive? I often think with competitive is trying to change that mindset from relative performance to actual performance, so from competitive to achievement. Mm. And so setting goals in a way with what is actually, what does a good goal look like? And so it's not being the number one, it's it's maybe selling this much stuff or 
it's doing it in this much time or whatever yep. the metric may be. What what does a good performance look like? Irrelevant of what, whether that's better or worse than the others, what does an actual, yeah. what would you be happy with? So you know, I often think of a, in a sporting context, lots of people talk about being a competitor and so on. But I think, would you be happy with running a personal best even if you didn't come first in the race? Mm. And the achievement person would be, right? If that's the best you've ever performed, that's a fantastic mm. result. And whether you came First or not, doesn't matter. You lifted your performance. Mm. And so that's an absolute measure of performance, right? So my time goal is this many hours or, you know, whatever makes sense. And if you do that right, then you stand a good chance of of winning the mm. race, right? And mm. so the result comes. Um, so, com- you know, and th- this is the mistake competitive people make. Achievement people do really well in competitive situations, right? So achievement people actually enjoy competition because it's where they can test themselves and Mm. test their skills and and whatnot. But it's about their own performance, not the relative performance. So an achievement person would be dissatisfied if they won the race but didn't run a good time for them, Mm. right? So the best of a bad bunch would be unsatisfactory to someone high on achievement. Yeah, because of the win-lose mentality of that that dialogue. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you got me thinking as well that the, what you might find with individuals high on competitive is that they want to know how others did all the time. So there's a constant comparison. Mm. Like they'll verbalise it. What did? Where do I sit relative to others? So just to to your point, you you do need to create a personal best goal that you can pull yourself back to, mm. as opposed to looking externally. Because it's a yeah really important and, thing to do. And I think that's just just around goals in general with competitive i think it's always what's the overall objective what is the actual what really matters here Mm. to me because i think you can get caught up in winning the battle or winning the short-term point right and so you know you get like in an argument or something it's about winning the point in the argument rather (laughs) than why does it actually matter what are we trying to get to what overall matters so if we're trying to build a championship team does winning this point and shooting you down or something does that actually come at a cost to that yeah, are we actually, help us achieve that? Are we achieving the overall mission? Yeah. And so being really clear on what that is helps you identify what's important, what's worth fighting for, what's worth competing over, mm. and what's not, right? Yeah. I think one other thing I would add to the just thinking about the competitive style is that the challenge I think individuals face with shifting it is that they've used competitive as a motivator for performance for so long. Uh, and so that is one of the, I guess, the challenges to shift from using that real competitive drive of wanting to be the best and letting go of that. So they need something to go to, to your point around, we need to set a really clear goal to work towards, to pull us away. Because you know, to, to stop that as a motivator is very threatening. Because if I stop doing that, does that mean I stop progressing? Uh, so I, that's the challenge. I, I, I remember for myself, I... You know, I've had my run-ins with the competitive style. As have I. And I remember <laughs> when I was younger, I was living in a flat with a bunch of friends, and I'd go down and I'd run around this park, and um, you know, it was a kind of central-ish park, and I was running around. And there was another person running the opposite way or something, so you'd kind of clock laps, and so you'd pass each other in the same spot or not. So you could track if you're going faster. So you could track if you're going faster <laughs> or not, and so like I was, you know, I'd like. And, and it's it, motivating, it, right? It, it motivated. So I, I lifted and I ran faster and I beat this guy. And I, I went, I'll never forget, I went back to the house and I said to my best friend, I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy, like, I kicked his ass kind of thing. And he just goes, oh, right, so you, you won a race against someone who didn't even know they were competing. Like, <laughs> Congratulations, well done. And it was like, 
I mean, it really put me in my place because it's like, you're right. He didn't even know he was in a race and I'm like celebrating it. How ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, God, um, it's so funny. I have a similar story. Do you? <laughs> well, I actually realized that I used to you know, create all these challenges, these athletic challenges. And, you know, because always, you know, you could do more, do more competitions to what, it, you know, and set some, some unrealistic targets in order to achieve them. And it was a realization point for me that I did an Ironman or half Ironman rather. And uh, it was only my second triathlon, but 90 kilometers on a bike. And I realized at about the 45 kilometer point how much I just don't even enjoy cycling. Like, <laughs> I was like, I That's hate, a bad spot to realize that. I hate that. this so much, you know. <laughs> and it was like, but after, you know, like I just thought, why, you know, there's not even enjoyment in this for me. Why am I doing it? So, <laughs> so you went to biathlons instead, did you? Purely, yeah. <laughs> but you know, this is the purely for the competition's sake, realizing uh-huh. that, that I can. So I was just like, why do it to yourself? Yeah, right. Have not done one since. And that was the competitive nature in me, the, the, the mm. drive to So you're compete, not even enjoying not it. Not even enjoying it. Mm. And that's probably a good question to ask, you know. Do, do you, you enjoy, enjoy it? it? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> do you enjoy it? Yeah. No. You're just doing well, it for and, the challenge. And I think it takes a lot of fun out of things because even in your personal life, you start competing with your family or your friends or whatever. And yeah. so you can steal your own joy. Absolutely. So maybe uh, if we move on to the perfectionistic, perfectionistic. one. So perfectionistic at its highest is characterized by setting unrealistic goals for yourself and then being quite critical mm. when you don't reach them. So as a cycle, that's quite a, a difficult treadmill to be running on internally. and so. You, what you can observe in people high on perfectionistic, sometimes they can be a bit guarded, you know, you can, there's a bit of a shield up because high perfectionistic can also be about wanting to appear perfect or uh, appear flawless. Uh, and so you can get it sometimes a bit of a distancing effect. In a debrief, it can also be challenging because it's uncomfortable to admit weakness uh, because I want to be seen as perfect. And right. so I always, I do tend to tread with a little bit of caution where I see perfectionistic at the 90th percentile because of the threat state that is experienced when we're exposed as something that's deemed other than, you know, highly desirable. Ah. And so just being mindful of some of that with hyperfectionistic is important. So what kind of actions do you do with that? Because I think that is a, it's a tricky one, right? Because it, it works against itself almost to, to be able to develop and grow. You have to admit some shortcomings and that goes hmm. against your whole style. So yeah. where do you look to as far as actions for development and growth come from? Some of the actions that I've worked with perfectionistic around is around reevaluating, so writing down all the things that they're working on and reevaluating what is a true priority or what is you know what is reasonable to achieve in certain so assessing the actual goals or or things that you've got on your plate uh. and just doing a temperature check with yourself is it realistic? Usually they can point to the fact that it's not realistic very quickly uh. and then sort of reestablishing some realistic boundaries. The other thing I often work with people who are perfectionistic is picking up on the the joy point before with competitive is where are you getting fun from right now? Because often the style will manifest in working long, hard hours, putting a lot of pressure on yourself. The cost will often be in people in terms of relationships, maybe not spending time with people or being tired on the weekend. And so trying to understand what that individual is doing for fun to recharge Uh. is another question that is worth exploring. And then there's some sort of techniques around the mindset piece. So really cluing yourself into the language. Often you hear people high perfectionistic saying things like I should have, I could have, 
you know, so they'll leave a meeting and they'll say, I should have had the answer to that Right, they're beating question. themselves up. Yeah, and so tuning in, turning the volume up to that dialogue because there's an active critic and perfectionistic that can tick over unbeknownst to people for many years. So turn the volume up and just notice when it shows up for you. And so for some individuals, they can get quite targeted. So one of our colleagues actually talks, her example was how her perfectionistic shows up when she leaves meetings earlier on in her career. You know, I should have known that I should have had it prepared. Uh. Others, when they make mistakes, you know, they go into a deep, gosh, why didn't I pick that up? So being mindful of when it shows up and, and sort of capturing that. And then it's really the action is to reframe it into an achievement-oriented thing you might say to yourself. Oh, it's a, okay. So there's an opportunity there that emerged that I can address later or what did you learn from the situation and, as and, opposed to what was a failure. Yeah, and so part of it's addressing that as well. So, so just yesterday I sent out, we sent out a newsletter to the organisation, uh, to the network. So if you're not on our newsletters, you can sign up on our web page. And in there, there was an article about adding your accreditation to LinkedIn and this is probably a few weeks later that we were releasing this episode, but you might remember this email. And I had this button in there that you clicked and it kind of popped up with a window from LinkedIn, or at least that's what was supposed to happen. Uh, so I've actually found out overnight because someone replied that the, it's not linked, so it's not going there. And the moment you see that, you're like, oh, oh. bugger. <laughs> you know, and like your heart drops, right? But what can you do? So so either you can pretend it didn't happen, which would be the kind of perfectionist where you sweep it under the rug mm. and beat yourself up on it or what i'm planning on doing is sending out second email to those people who tried opening it and maybe making a bit of fun of myself yeah have a laugh about, with yourself uh, you know thanks for clicking but uh you know here's the actual link sort of thing that's a i mean that's a really great point you know how do you have a laugh and when you monitor some of your language i encourage people to do it in a non-judgmental fashion and also have a bit of a chuckle you know oh gosh i did it again oh well pick up move on what'd you learn yeah, that's it. What about as well, a bit of a different angle? So this, I'm just making this up, so let me know what you think. But um, perfectionistic, in that style, people can be afraid to try something new, right? Mm. Because I've got to be perfect at it, mm. and therefore I'll avoid doing new things. Mm. And so maybe an action or a challenge could be a, go out and try something new in your personal life. So go out and learn jujitsu or something, you know? And you're going to suck at it, right? You're going to suck because everyone who starts learning jujitsu or something sucks. But can you do that and keep moving forward, right? And, and keep learning and growing and developing and challenging yourself in an entirely new environment in which you have no expertise? Yeah, it's a really good point. I worked with a lawyer once who, in her attempts to reduce some of her perfectionistic, she picked up a some kind of artistic or creative outlet. Uh -huh. She was not good at it, but what she found, in the, and it was difficult for her because she was so good at being competent, right? which is a part of perfectionistic, I'm competent, appear competent, uh -huh. be professional. And in, in the sort of process of learning how to paint, she found herself wanting to get it done right, but then realized it didn't matter. And she just found joy and peace in the process uh -huh. of not needing to do things right, but just going with it. So... Often with perfectionistic, it's about just giving it a go and seeing what happens because it slows you down and you find joy in something that doesn't require you to be perfect at it. Uh -huh. mm. I love it. I think that's a great note to end on. So if you could just summarize, like, what are the, what's the kind of thinking and the actions that you've suggested today? So what can people keep in mind if they're coming up with actions? Well, the um, remembering that a cluster level task orientation often comes with it. Individuals who want pace, 
speed, results, action, task. And so being mindful of that in terms of your frame up and also in how you approach each one of your debriefs. And then really remembering that the task orientation often has a burn on people or the message is, you know, we don't trust you. So the opportunities often sit in building those relationships, taking the time with people to communicate, understanding how you can grow others and find some enjoyment in life. And also thinking about the cost outside of work, not just inside of work, because the motivation Mm -hmm. for change may sit with outside of work. Love it. I think those are great points. Thanks for your time today, Liana. Thanks, Tom. It was fun. Thank you.